Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 9, continuing our series of studies through the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Please give your attention to God's Word. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I pray that in my lifetime, I will get to witness a real, true spiritual revival. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which when we've seen them in the history of the world, has resulted in a deep and powerful conviction of sin that drives sinners to their knees and causes them to cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness and find that mercy and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that I might be able to witness that. But I have to admit, as I look at my own culture, we are much more in a time of apostasy today than we are of revival. It seems to me I'm seeing and hearing about more people who once professed faith in Christ, once claimed to follow Christ, that have turned and walked away from him. Especially, it seems, among some of our young adults. There are many reasons for this, I think, but I read an article a few days ago that gives an angle on it from a young adult perspective that I appreciated. This young man is called Caleb Waite, and he wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition that was about the distinctions he saw among his friends, people that were his friends as teenagers, how many of them stayed with Christ and continued to follow Christ as adults as opposed to those who didn't. And he identified one particular, as he calls it, common denominator. I want to read that portion for you. He says, the common denominator concerns one's knowledge and relationship to the doctrines of the church. Nearly all my friends who were naturally interested in doctrine remain faithful members in churches to this day. Those who were not 
have moved on from Christianity as if it were an intermediary step on their greater spiritual journey. To them, formal doctrine was held in less esteem than authentic spiritual experience. Doctrine was impractical, community life was practical. Theology was for the intellectuals in the church, but the average member just needed to be loved. This low view of doctrine and high view of personal spirituality is often the first step for those at the precipice of deconverting. As I look at my own experience in several different kinds of churches, it does seem to me that too much church leaders and parents are content if their teenagers are willing to come to church because that's where they can have fun and make Christian friends. Any teaching that teenagers tend to get in so many of our churches is focused upon what they consider to be relevant. They set the agenda. And so the teaching they get tends to focus on what they consider to be practical things, like dating, or how to make friends, or how to handle social media. All those things are fine. But what's missing in too much of the training are the foundational doctrinal issues upon which they will build their worldview and therefore their lives. Churches tend to avoid teaching Bible doctrine in Sunday school or youth group settings because the youth become bored and they complain and then end up refusing to participate. And the result is that as these teenagers become young adults and go out and face the world, they're not remotely prepared for the kind of intellectual challenges and experiential challenges that they're going to face. Caleb Waite goes on to write later in the article, the Christian life is more than knowing the right things about Christ, but it's not less. Scripture is clear that Christianity is not merely about believing the right things, it's also about placing faith in and following the right person. But to follow him, we must know whose image we are being conformed to. Our spiritual journey will be a directionless wander unless we have a deep abiding knowledge of whom we are journeying toward and why. Well, that's what this passage that we just read from Luke chapter 9 is all about. Jesus here teaches his disciples the core essential truths of the message that is not only changing their lives, but is going to be the core of the message that they are to take to the world. We've seen that in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is increasingly turning his attention away from teaching the crowds at large and focusing his attention on preparing his disciples for the mission that lay before them. And here he's going to teach them what in Matthew's account he calls the stone on which, the rock on which the church is going to be built, the cornerstone of the faith. In verses 1 and 2, we saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus prepared his disciples and then sent them out on their first missionary journey. And then when they came back and gave their reports of how that missionary journey went, he took the time and did one of the greatest miracles of his entire ministry to show them that he is sufficient for all things. He took 
a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, and he, felt, he fed way more than 5,000 people in a miraculous act of provision. And the point, as we saw last week, is that he is sufficient for the needs of his people, and he would be sufficient for the disciples as they go out to take the message of the kingdom of God to the world. Well, now Jesus is going to give them the core of that message, the three essential truths. Very easy to break them down. It basically comes down to three questions that every sinner needs to answer. The first question he teaches them that must be answered is, who is Jesus Christ? The second question is, why did he come? And the third question is, how does a sinner follow him? Those are the three questions. Let's look at each one individually. First of all, the question, the key question, the first question that must be asked is who is Jesus Christ? That's the question that had been trending all over Galilee and Judea. And so, because everybody was talking about it, Jesus says to his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? That was the question that had been increasingly being asked as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. It's been a hot question. Remember when the disciples were in the boat and the storm threatened to sink them and drown them, Jesus stood up and by his word alone, he stopped the storm. And in Luke chapter 8, it says that this was the response of the disciples. They said, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who is this? And then earlier in chapter 9, after Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of that part of the Roman Empire, after he had heard the reports about the teaching and the miracles that Jesus was doing, and hearing that people were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, the same John the Baptist that he had ordered to be beheaded, it says that he, his response was, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And that continues to be the most important question. Who is this Jesus Christ? And so the disciples share what they've been hearing among the crowds. The popular answer was he was John the Baptist. We were, Herod had heard that. That's what the disciples were hearing. Most people thought he was John the Baptist. Well, how could he be John the Baptist? John the Baptist had been beheaded. Well, the Jews did not believe in reincarnation. What they were saying was they do believe, they did believe, and most of them believed in resurrection. They believed that God had raised John the Baptist from the dead. And so he was the great prophet, the forerunner, the one who would come to announce the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God. Others said Elijah. And you can imagine why Elijah. First of all, a lot of Jesus' miracles, I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of Jesus' miracles were very similar to the miracles that Elijah did on a much smaller scale. But particularly if you know the prophecy of Malachi, the very last Old Testament prophet, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God says through the prophet Malachi, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so many of the Jews believed that somehow Elijah was going to be returned to earth and come to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So many people were saying, well, this is Elijah. We know that John the Baptist was actually the Elijah that was promised. The angel told his, his father that when John the Baptist came into his ministry, it says that he would do so in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then Jesus would later confirm that John the Baptist was 
the Elijah to come, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But the, the disciples knew that Jesus was not just a prophet. They had witnessed so much. They had seen him do miracles that no ordinary prophet could do. It's interesting, they didn't, the disciples did not throw out the negative press that Jesus was getting. We know that the opinion of the Pharisees was that he was a, that he was a servant of Beelzebul or a servant of Satan. But largely the people saw Jesus in a positive way, and that's still true to this day. It's hard to find somebody out there on the street who doesn't think positively of Jesus Christ. But what we see in the disciples' answer, what the crowds are saying, is it's very possible to, to have a very positive view of Jesus Christ, but have a very wrong view of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus isn't some kind of insecure politician checking the opinion polls here. He's asking the question for the disciples' sake. He's saying, as he turns the question directly to them, he says, what about you? And the word you there is plural. He's talking to all the disciples. What about you? What do you believe about who I am? Forget about the crowds. What do you believe? He's asking them to take a stand, to make a profession of faith. And so Peter, of course, the informal leader of the disciples, he steps forward and he speaks for the group. Peter and the disciples had seen Jesus heal every kind of sickness. They had seen Jesus raise the dead. They had seen Jesus stand up and speak and stop a storm at sea. They had seen him cast out demons. They would seen him feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. And they had heard and seen him teach with a kind of authority that no person had ever seen or heard on earth. They knew that he was more than just a prophet. He wasn't just one of the Old Testament prophets. He wasn't just Elijah. He wasn't just John the Baptist. He was more than that. And so Peter says it very simply, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now Christ wasn't the last name of Jesus. Christ was the title of Jesus. Christ was the office, you know, the, 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 the anointed one is what it meant literally. Both the word Messiah and Christ literally mean the anointed one. In the Old Testament, those who were chosen by God to deliver, to lead, to atone for his people, they were anointed to show that their authority and their power came from God. Kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed. But throughout the Old Testament, there was promise that one great anointed one would come. The one that would fulfill all of those roles and be the great high priest, the great king, the great prophet who would come and defeat all of God's enemies, do away with evil and establish the perfect shalom that the Jewish people had always hoped for, this kingdom of peace and satisfaction and joy. It would be established on earth and all sin and evil and opposition would be put away. This is what Peter is claiming. We believe that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, you believe this because God revealed it to you. In other words, you're right. This is God's view of who his son is. You nailed it. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so that's the first question 
He's training his disciples, remember. He's training them to take this message to the world. And the first and primary question that every sinner has to answer is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question is inherently doctrinal. The scriptures reveal to us who Jesus is. The Old Testament reveals him in foreshadowing, in types, in shadows. The New Testament reveals him in great glory and majesty. You don't have to understand everything that the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, but you must affirm it. Because this is who God has revealed that Jesus is. And of course it culminates in the teaching of the New Testament, something that was hinted at, it becomes clear in the New Testament that Jesus himself is the eternal Son of God. The Son who is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God himself. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's who Jesus is according to what God has revealed to us in his word. To know Jesus deeply, you have to dig into all of that. What does it mean that Jesus was fully man and also fully God? You have to dig into the depths of what the scriptures tell us about the Trinity. You have to understand his character, his nature. In order to know Jesus deeply, you must know him doctrinally. Ligonier Ministries, every two years, comes out with what they call state of theology. What they do is they basically survey Americans in general, but specifically Bible-believing evangelical Christians, and they ask them very simple questions about theology. It comes out every two years, and every two years it gets more and more discouraging what they find out about what people truly believe. Just to give you a couple examples from this year's survey. 30% of evangelical Christians in America, evangelical, people who claim to believe the Bible is the word of God, 30% of evangelical Americans agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 65% of evangelical Christians in America said that they believed that Jesus was the greatest creation of God, that he was created by God and therefore was the greatest creation of God. Those are not Bible-believing Christians because that is diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. But it's a reflection of the fact that we have de-emphasized the need to know and understand and communicate biblical doctrine. The teachings of the scripture about who Jesus is, that's what doctrine is. The Jesus Christ of the Bible is the only Jesus Christ who exists. And I've been long troubled by liberal churches who reject the word of God, but yet say that they follow Christ. 
And I'm even more deeply troubled by supposedly Bible-believing churches who say that they follow Christ but don't teach the biblical Christ. I've often wished that they would just choose another name for their Messiah. Choose another name for their leader. Call him Kevin. Call themselves Kevinians. But don't call yourself Christians who follow Christ because the Jesus Christ who's revealed in Scripture is not the Jesus Christ that's being proclaimed from their pulpits. Who is Jesus? That's the first and foundational question that must be answered. The second question, as Jesus lays it out here, is why did he come? Why did Jesus come? Verse 21, it says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He had just given them the biggest, best news that had ever been revealed on the planet. And then he says very strictly to them, do not tell anyone who I am. Why? Why do you see that repeated in the Gospels? Why were the disciples not to tell the world around them that he was the Messiah? It's because even they, let alone the crowds, but even they did not yet fully understand why he had come. They didn't understand his mission. And they wouldn't understand it until they had witnessed his suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. After they had seen his mission play out, his unique mission as the Son of God, the mission that only he could fulfill, then they could go out and tell the world that he is Messiah and here is why he came they didn't yet understand it. The word Messiah in the first century in Galilee, Galilee and Judea was a loaded term. It was a trigger word. The popular idea was that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament would come as a great Jewish military or political leader and he would be an earthly deliverer, somebody like a, a super Moses or a super Gideon or a super David who would come and do away with all of God's enemies and establish Israel as the kingdom of God on earth. In that day, there had been and would continue to be many false messiahs. Revolution was in the air. The, people, the Jewish people hated the Romans and jumped at any chance to throw off their authority. And so many messiahs would rise up and false messiahs claiming to be the one who would provide this kind of earthly deliverance. But in verse 22, Jesus describes his mission in terms that, again, these disciples did not yet understand. This is what he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The elders and the, and the chief priests and the scribes, that's the Sanhedrin. Those were the leaders of the Jewish people in that day. They would not welcome Jesus as this great hero and conqueror. It says instead they would reject him, cause him to suffer, and then they would kill him. Jesus had not come to lead some kind of military or political revolution. He came to die. He came to be a bloody sacrifice to pay for the sins of God's people, to atone for sin. 
What does the word atone mean? That's a doctrinal question. What does the word imputation mean? That's a doctrinal question, but it's a way of describing why he came. Imputation is a fancy theological word, word, but what it means is what the scriptures reveal about the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. That as he hung on the cross, he had lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. He had never sinned in any possible way. And yet he offered himself up as a Passover lamb. He offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice. And all of our sins, those who would ever believe in him and put their trust in him, all of our sins were placed upon him as he hung there on the cross. And God the Father turned his back upon him and poured out his wrath upon him because that's what our sins deserved. And those who put their faith in him, the scriptures teach, not only have our sins imputed to him so that our sins are put as far away as east is from west, but his righteousness is given then to as a gift to us. So that when God looks at us, legally speaking, we are innocent as though we had never sinned in thought, word, and deed. He paid for our sins on the cross as it was accounted to him. But he gives us the gift of his righteousness so that God can not only pardon us, forgive us, but adopt us into his family and make us part of his kingdom forever. He had to atone for our sins. The word atone means to cover over. And all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to what the cross of Jesus Christ would do for you and me. These are all theological truths that children can understand, but as you grow in Christ, you understand them more and more deeply, and that's how you draw closer and closer to him, understanding more and more of who he is and why he came and what he did for you. That's what it means to draw near to Christ. Yes, it's an experiential thing, it's an emotional thing, it's a spiritual thing, but it's also an intellectual thing. By knowing truth, you grow in Christ. Why did Jesus come? The great doctrines of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension explain the answer to that crucial question, why did Jesus come? Liberal churches deny these doctrines. Many evangelical churches ignore them, rarely mention them. I've been in many supposedly Bible-believing churches and listened to 45-minute messages that don't even mention the cross, don't even mention the crucifixion, don't even mention the resurrection. And the message is mostly about how to live a better life here in this earth or to accomplish some great work of social justice. Harry Reader made this comment recently. He said, it is an inescapable reality that when the culture shapes the mission of the church, it will soon shape the message. And that's what we've witnessed. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, the Jews remain, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that brings us to the third question, the practical implication of who Jesus is and why he came. How do we follow this Christ? How do we become his followers? The biblical answer, if you know the preaching of Peter, 
who spoke up here and claimed Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. His message in the book of Acts is you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the belief that he's talking about there is not just some kind of mere intellectual assent to the truth. The more common biblical term for belief in Christ is the word faith. Faith is belief that leads to trust. Faith is belief that leads to submission to the authority of Christ. Faith is belief that leads to a dependence upon Christ for everything you need in life. And faith is a belief that leads to obeying Christ, seeking to do his will and to be like him. That's what it means to follow Christ, to have faith in him. And so Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, and then he lays out the terms of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, if you will. Salvation is a free gift. God gives you salvation. He even gives you the faith as a gift that leads to your salvation. Everything is a gift from him, but it is a gift that transforms you. It's a gift that does away with your old identity and creates in you a new identity that is patterned after Jesus Christ himself. Jesus isn't just describing what discipleship would look like for the apostles or other super disciples. He's talking about what it means for all of us. And he teaches here that a life of discipleship is a life of dying to self. As I have studied Christian living and Christian theology for a very long time, I have come around to finally comprehend and see that the teaching of the New Testament is that this is the key to what it means to be a disciple, is that you've got to die to self. You've got to die to self. You've got to put away the old man. That's the language of Paul. Put away the old man and put on the new man in Christ. Jesus goes on to say that you have to lose your life in order to save it. In other words, if you want to be saved by Christ, then you need to put to death the old man, the old identity, lose that life that was so central to who you are and everything you were about. You've got to lose that life in order to receive the new life that he has to offer to you. He, makes an, he gives an even more shocking phrase when he says, this means taking up your cross daily. We're used to thinking of the cross as a metaphorical thing, but it was a very literal thing to these disciples when they first heard this. The cross, when they heard the cross, the only thing that they could think of was the Roman instrument of crucifixion, the Roman instrument of execution. The very vivid image of death. In other words, you need to die with Christ. He was the one who would go to the cross. And that old identity, that old you that was so self-centered, so selfish, so driven by your lustful desires, that old person that lived for the rewards and goals and purposes of this world, that old self has to die. Matter of fact, to, to quote Paul more directly, it did die. Because you died with Christ on the cross. That's the teaching. Let me read you that section from Romans chapter 6. Because Romans 6 is Paul's explanation of the deep doctrines of discipleship. Here's how he describes it, beginning in verse 1. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In verse 11, he goes on to say, So you, must, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. It's what it means to die to self. The old man, the old, the old self, the old person you used to be before you met Christ, it was all about glorifying yourself and pursuing your kingdom and your agenda. But now you follow Christ. And that old man has to die. And yes, it's painful. It's hard work. But it's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Because the gift of faith that he gave you that saved you, that kind of faith leads you to want to trust him, to want to submit to his authority, to follow him as Lord, to walk in his way, to do his will. And as you put the old man to death and put on the new man, as you live that new life in Christ, you find out, as Paul says in Galatians, that's freedom. That's real freedom. As Paul puts it, as he describes this lifestyle of repentance in Galatians 4, he puts it this way, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We call that the doctrines of sanctification. How does God take a lost, broken selfish, self-centered sinner like you and I used to be, how does he take somebody like that and turn them into a Christ-like disciple? That's the doctrine of sanctification. The whole New Testament is devoted to teaching us what the life of discipleship looks like. Following Jesus means denying your selfish, self-centered old nature and learning by grace to love God and to love others. That's what the new man delights in. The new man delights in loving God and loving others. And so those are the three simple questions. This is what a disciple needs to know in order to follow Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Why did he come? And how do we follow him? Digging deep into the scriptures to understand the answers to those questions is going to be the lifelong obsession of a true believer. The answers that you find in scripture are simple enough to share over coffee with a neighbor who doesn't believe. And yet they're deep enough to be a lifelong study and you'll never even scratch the surface of the depth of the truth that is there. As supposedly St. Augustine once said, the truths of scripture are shallow enough for a child to wade in but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. To love Jesus, you need to really know him. To know him, you need to study his word. And when you do, 
His promise is he will draw near to you, he will strengthen you, and he will transform you into his image. I can't offer you any better news than that. Let's pray. Father, for many of us who have spent a long time in the church, these are truths that have been taught every Sunday and hopefully many days during the week in our homes. And yet, Lord, there's so much we still have to learn. There's so much sanctification that still needs to take place in our lives. Lord, continue to teach us what it means to be disciples of Christ. Help us to dig deeper into these foundational truths that have explained how Christ has saved us. And Lord, I pray that as we understand them more deeply, I pray that you also would teach us to communicate and articulate them more clearly to those around us. Because everybody we know needs to know who Jesus is, why he came, and how to follow him. Use us as your messengers, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.